0: Hi everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers. Happy for you to join me and us today. I'm in the studio with Austin Armstrong and Franz Salvatierra, the two co-producers and uh, geniuses of this production. I appreciate all the work that they do and I'm happy to be, uh, be with you today. Thanks for coming to join me today. Some of you have coming back after previous presentations and I'm appreciate your loyalty to this. We'll be moving forward today. I'll tell you where I want to start with is just this idea of Ask an Addiction Specialist. Uh, I've mentioned this once before, but I want to talk about how it is that I might qualify as an addiction specialist, and I, I think it, it fits both professionally and personally, and I, uh, I hope that this will land in a way that opens you up to uh, going wherever we, where we go today. Uh, Certainly, my background in clinical psychology uh, and my training as well as my clinical experience have given me a lot of uh, 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 foundational roots in working with addiction and recovery. In fact, there was an, uh, some findings announced there were some findings announced in the last few years by an organization out of uh, the Department of Mental Health in Washington that suggested that, that up to one half of clients coming in to see a therapist or a counselor for treatment are presenting with uh, a diagnosable addictive disorder even though most of those clients don't necessarily necessarily lead with that Clients will bring in relationship problems, work-related problems, parenting problems. Uh, there's so much stigma um, societally as well as within families to acknowledge being addicted. And so I've worked with a lot of clients that did not present with addiction um, in the front yard, so to speak, but it came out later in the conversations, actually became a center point of the therapies. So in that way, I, I, uh, I have uh, a lot of years um, a lot of hours of experience working with addiction clinically. I have the, uh, the, uh, the unusual history statistically of having become addicted to substance in midlife, and so um, uh, it's another way of being a specialist. It's not one that I'm particularly proud of, but it certainly uh, uh, gives me another uh, orientation in addition to book smarts, let's say is that I have firsthand exposure to addiction, to alcohol and other drugs uh, uh, in my own life, and I uh, bring that, uh, what I've learned from that in my own uh, recovery, I bring that knowledge to you all as well today. In some ways, I feel like that's the more important knowledge, is the first-hand knowledge that I've learned kind of uh, down in the depth. And there's another way of thinking of this too, is that if you're a, a living, breathing human being on planet Earth, and some people would say, particularly in contemporary, Uh, U.S. society that uh, addiction is something that that you are well aware of and that we've all uh, dealt with uh, maybe all of our lives. And so if we open up addiction to include beyond just addiction to alcohol and other drugs uh, including nicotine, if we open up addiction to include uh, the whole range of addictive behaviors, sometimes referred to as process addictions they're well not universal. I cite this statistic from time to time, but there was a recent survey done in the United States in which 90% of those that responded adults uh, in the US uh, uh, endorsed that they were addicted to at least one behavior, if not more uh, right now. And so it's to make it almost universal then that uh, that in a way all of us know addiction firsthand, if not to substance, then certainly to family members that are addicted. Here's another statistic. is that in a a third study, two-thirds of those that responded, uh, uh, adults responded by saying that they had a family member that was addicted to substance. And out of that same group, two-thirds of those who said they had a family member that was addicted said they had not talked to anybody or would not talk to anybody outside of the direct family about the addiction. So that gives you a sense of the societal kind of context for addiction is that it's not okay to admit it to ourselves if we're in addiction and it's certainly not okay even to admit to others outside of our family that somebody in our family is in need of help. Turns out that in in substance addiction, roughly 10% of the population at any given time is clinically addicted to alcohol and other drugs. Uh, That's an enormous number of people that are uh, actively addicted. Uh, And that means clinically addicted in terms of the diagnostic manual that is used in psychology and psychiatry. But out of that 10%, at any given time, only 1% are in treatment for the addiction. So it leaves a tremendous amount of people that are being underserved, undertreated, uh, uh, that uh, are actively addicted to substance. And then if we expand the aperture to include those that have addictive behaviors, and we oftentimes talk about food addictions, uh, sex addictions, including pornography, gambling addictions, including online applications. And speaking of online, video game addictions, uh, work addictions. If we expand it to include all the host of behaviors we can be addicted to, then we have a lot of people that are suffering um, uh, with addiction that are not uh, uh, in treatment or uh, have not found Um, help adequate to address the addiction. One of the ways I like to talk about addiction is to use it in its root sense, and I've shared that here before, is that addiction derives from the Latin root, addictus, which simply means to be uh, enslaved. Addictus is slave. And so I actually prefer that. I feel like it's less of a medicalized term and maybe there's less. Approbrium, less negativity around the term of enslavement, and all of us who have experienced addiction or are experiencing addiction in whatever form, whether to substance or behavior, do know what it's like to be enslaved to a behavior that we cannot stop, cannot control, and that is wreaking havoc in our personal and professional lives. And so. That gets us all here in Ask an Addiction Specialist, and uh, in some ways, we're all quite specialized. We all have very individual knowledge and close-hand, first-hand experience of addiction. Last week in our presentation, we focused on uh, the advanced treatment of shame. Uh, We discussed how it is that shame is integral uh, to uh, addiction, both in terms of uh, the beginnings of addiction, as well as sustaining it. If there were a subtitle for last week's presentation, it would be this: "Unshaming is the goal here." And uh, the belief that I have, and that I was, uh, the conviction I was forwarding last week, is that for sustained recovery to take hold, it requires addressing shame. And we're going to be looking today at at kind of the flip side of the coin, or something that's right up next to shame, and that's and that's the topic of forgiveness. We've discussed both shame in numerous presentations here because it's so key or crucial in the healing from addiction. And we've also discussed today's topic before, forgiveness, and I look at today as an, a kind of a deeper dive, an advanced uh, examination of the psychology of forgiveness. And today is the first of two advanced looks at at uh, forgiveness, and I'll later on summarize where we'll be going next week. There just wasn't enough time today to cover all that I felt like was necessary in this uh, deeper exploration, this deeper examination of forgiveness uh, in reference to uh, healing from addiction. If there were a subtitle for today, and I think it's the announcement I made last week, it would be on Breaking the Vicious Cycle of Shame. I intend to uh, uh, offer up to you not only information but also exercises today that will um, uh, give you a foundation in understanding how it is that forgiveness is one of the most powerful antidotes and in some ways the most direct antidote to shame. I want to direct you, uh, when you have opportunity, back to the fourth episode in this series which focused on self-compassion. In that episode, I introduced all of us to a a forgiveness practice. It was an in-depth meditation that, that rather than talking about forgiveness, I felt like it was important for us just to experience it firsthand, both in terms of forgiving others and uh, also ideally in terms of forgiving ourselves as a means to self-compassion and self-compassion as the uh, opposite or the antidote to shame. I I wanna continue to push this forward today and again uh, share with you uh, through a series of uh, findings as well as exercises how it is that self-compassion and forgiveness are absolutely essential to successful sustained recovery. I'd like to kick this off today by sharing a quote uh, uh, with you by the Christian theologian C.S. Lewis. Lewis said this, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. I think he wrote that slightly with tongue in cheek. Uh, And I certainly read it that way. Not that forgiveness isn't deadly serious. It is, especially when we're talking about recovery from addiction. But also to acknowledge that it's a great idea. (laughs) But what exactly does forgiveness look like when it's fleshed out in the smithy of one's soul, and the smithy of one's life? So I want to ask you to do something starting right off today. I want to ask for you to identify... Uh, uh, an interaction, maybe a recent interaction, that's left you feeling um, uh, resentful, where, where you might benefit from today's practice in uh, forgiveness. And so I think it will help to ground where we go today, and I'll be referring back to uh, uh, our personal uh, examples that we've chosen individually. And I think in order to, to locate uh, such an instance, Uh, I want to give one prefatory comment and then I want to lead us in a brief meditation just to open a space where you might be able to focus in your body, in your memory, in a quiet uh, uh, zone uh, to locate some unfinished business in and around um, a, a, a hurt that you received, maybe a hurt that you administered. We'll be looking at it from both sides, both in terms of forgiving others as opposed to holding a grudge as well as ideally uh, being forgiven by others, including forgiving ourselves um, in an interior practice, which is a way that we hold the grudge silently, oftentimes out of awareness uh, in our bodies and do ourselves no favors. And so, um, so as I lead us in a brief, this is a very brief meditation, just a few minutes, uh, a meditation on the breath, uh, mindfulness of the breath, I'm going to be asking you uh, in the back of your mind to see what bubbles up in terms of uh, a situation, a circumstance with an individual that you'd like to work with today. I won't be asking you to share this with me, although I do invite your comments and questions as we move through this. For sure, you won't be asked to disclose what you're sharing. And if you have a, a piece of notepaper in front of you, it could be handy to write down, uh, 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 this situation real briefly. So I'll lead us in a meditation, give you a moment to write down what it is you'd like to work on today, and then we'll examine this over the course of uh, the remainder of our time together. I mentioned that I was going to uh, suggest one caveat, it's this. I'd ask you to select something that feels manageable. It, it, uh, there's no reason to dive into the deep end today. Some of us have hurts that have been done us or harms that we have exacted at somebody else's expense that are just too big, too mountainous to really handle in this kind of situation. Here we are online, we're together, but we're online. And uh, that there may need to be more time spent and actually more adequate containment to manage some of these deeper resentments. So I'd like you to select something that bugs you, but that doesn't swamp you. Okay. So with that in mind, join me in two or three minutes of mindfulness of the breath. I'll lead us in the instructions. And, and as you're following the breath instructions, also be noticing, uh, inviting in the possibility of uh, pinpointing an interaction that you'd like to work with today. One where resentment might be replaced, ideally, by forgiveness. Okay. I'll close my eyes. You're welcome to do the same. Take in a deep breath. Hold that breath as long as you're comfortable and then release it. Now in the second breath in, see if you can focus just on the sensations of breathing. I find it really useful to focus on the rising and falling of the belly. So breathing in, in the air fill, your stomach rise. And then when you're ready, breathe out and allow your your tummy to settle, fall, rising and falling. And do that again, breathing in. Slowly, peacefully, hold that. And then allow the falling of the belly. Let that be your focus. Another deep breath in. And now the out breath. Now, if you're in a a place where you can continue to breathe quietly without distraction, that's ideal. I'm gonna ask for us to uh, breathe three or four more complete breath cycles in and out. And as you're doing that, see what comes to mind, what you can locate in terms of a relationship where you'd like to work on both forgiving and being forgiven, something that may have come up recently, again, that feels manageable. It's problematic, but it's not uh, catastrophic. So breathing in, breathing out, and see what comes up that you might want to work on today. When you've identified someone that you can work with, again, this will be just internally in your mind's eye, Uh, if you have a piece of paper there, uh, write their name down. I'll be asking you to do some journaling a little bit later today, but this is a start. to get down the individual and, and if possible, the specific interaction that that has stuck in your craw. And when you're ready, we'll come back. I want to go back to that quote by C.S. Lewis now in the context of our having meditated just for a few minutes together, as well as identified um, someone with which we want to uh, clear the system. C.S. Lewis says, everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And so what we're wanting to do is to move from just an idea about forgiveness. You could read a book on forgiveness and never have practiced it. (laughs) It's like reading a book on bicycling, Uh, wanting to encourage actually getting on the bike. So that's my intention today, which is part of what makes this a more advanced analysis. Um, I'd like to share with you uh, a, a few findings from experts in the area of forgiveness and then uh, draw us towards an exercise where we will apply the principles we've gathered uh, to the individual and the interaction that you've just identified. Uh, The first uh, expert is one of the uh, primary writers in psychology on forgiveness over the last uh, several decades. His name is Everett Worthington. Last I checked Everett Worthington was at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's written 25 books on forgiveness, just to give you an idea what I mean by expertise, and written hundreds of articles, research articles on forgiveness, so he's certainly at the very top of the heap in terms of expertise. I had a chance to hear uh, Dr. Worthington present years ago at a local conference. I was deeply moved, not only uh, by his obvious expertise, but by the story he told, and I wanna share that story with you briefly. Dr. Worthington, Uh, had an aged mother who lived uh, uh, locally. I believe she lived in Tennessee. He shared this openly with a large group, so I feel like I can share it with you as well. And uh, in the years prior to my meeting him in the context of this conference, this presentation, someone had broken into his mother's apartment and brutally murdered her. And this was years and years after uh, Dr. Worthington had developed expertise in addressing forgiveness. And here he was with this horrific experience, it's unimaginable. And he shared with us, with tears flowing, the process that he went through of applying, once again, book learning and research studies to his own experience. And I wouldn't recommend this for anybody who hasn't done the amount of work that Dr. Worthington had done but he actually, they, they found the individual that killed his mother. This individual went to prison. And if memory serves, Dr. Worthington actually went to visit this individual in prison sometime later and shared with us the experience of being able to find forgiveness for this individual's heinous act of killing, killing his own mother. I talk about stamping in the personal and the professional into one experience. Uh, that entire uh, lecture has been unforgettable uh, to me all these years, and I want to share you, with you <clears throat> some nuggets from that as well as readings I've done of, of Everett Worthington since then. For example, Everett makes a distinction between what he calls decisional forgiveness and emotional forgiveness. Now, decisional forgiveness hews closely to what you just I shared with you uh, from C.S. Lewis where it sounds like forgiveness is a good idea, I can decide to forgive somebody. That is, I'm not going to exact revenge on that person, though I want to, and I can decide not to do that. And that really, uh, that has its own nobility. It also has its own inherent limitations. But decisional forgiveness is one way that we can forgive. And frankly, I think most of us are left with decisional forgiveness. I decide to forgive you because the, the latter form, emotional forgiveness, is so... Um, Um, So inaccessible to most of us. I want to make it more accessible today to our viewing audience. Now, why this is pertinent? why, Why would emotional forgiveness be so important? In other words, I can forgive somebody. I can decide not to avenge whatever wrong that they've perpetrated against me or against a loved one. But that won't do away with the emotional feelings, including the resentment that follows. Why is this so important in the context of recovery from addiction? Well, for any of you that have been involved in any form uh, with the 12-step support group, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Al-Anon, you'll know right away that one of the key triggers for relapse that is identified in the 12-step movement is resentment. And so then that begs the question, if resentment is one of the key triggers to my relapse or to the the relapse of a loved one, what the Sam Hill do I do about that? And to go back to Worthington's uh, distinction, decisional forgiveness won't be nearly adequate because it does not clear out resentment. It will will decide not to harm somebody in retaliation, and that's not a bad thing, but it doesn't go deeply enough to surgically address the resentment that can be a cancer that uh, continues uh, in one's psyche and in the context of addiction at great peril to one's recovery. So let's talk about resentments for just a second. Let's talk about it, uh, uh, two different directions that resentment may go. When I have resentments or hold resentments for others, we can talk about that for shorthand's sake, we can talk about that as blame is that I carry resentment towards you, I blame you, and in fact, can't let go of that grudge. The other direction of of resentment is towards myself. And it's not a way that we typically think of resentments, but it's worth looking at, and we certainly explored this deeply last week, which is that when I turn that blame towards myself, when I hold that resentment within, towards my very being, then that really is the definition of shame. And so what we're addressing here with resentments is both blame towards the outer world of relationships, people that we uh, hold resentment towards, or resentment that we turn towards ourselves and we, uh, we hate ourselves, we condemn ourselves, we judge ourselves. In either case, there's no mercy. There's no mercy towards the other. There's no mercy towards ourselves. Now, one of the challenges of holding this resentment inside is that it eats us alive. And my understanding of how it connects to resentment from a, a brain perspective is that resentment held inside in the, in the emotional center of the brain activates a stress response, a fight or flight response, I might as well add freeze, fight, flight, or freeze response that kicks up my stress hormones such that I'm going to need to find some way to manage that. And one way to do that is to aggress. I can lash out in anger, uh, or I can lash in. And when I hold that towards myself, that can manifest as anxiety. It can manifest as depression. It can manifest as some other form of emotional distress. And in many cases, in fact, in most cases, when we're talking about addiction, I'll want to find some way to self-regulate, and if I can't find any process that relieves me of this internal pain, then I'll self-medicate. And I can self-medicate with a substance like alcohol or other drugs, or I can self-medicate with a behavior that temporarily numbs out the inner uh, uh, terror that I'm living living in. And So it's worth our looking at this because if we understand that resentment is the seedbed of relapse, uh, uh, it's one of the key triggers for relapse, and we understand even some about the biology of it, And that it really doesn't matter whether it's pointing outward or inward. It does us no favors. In fact, I had one supervisor, Bonnie Badenoch, who talked about it this way, is that the seat of anger, one of the organs of anger in the middle of our brains, is referred to as the amygdala. She said the amygdala has no time stamp. And what she meant by that is that when I'm activated, for example, with a resentment, when anger is activated for me, it doesn't matter. The anger could have trans the offense the offense could have uh, have, uh, transpired 30 years ago, but in this moment right now, when I'm holding this resentment, this boiling anger inside, it's here and now, right now. That's the idea of no timestamp. It doesn't really need to be past, future, it's all present when when we talk about resentments. And so I hope you can begin to see how key it is that we find some effective means or sets of strategies with which we might address this resentment, which basically kills us. So I want to start uh, or move next into, a, uh, I think, a very important distinction in talking about, about shame and blame, and this is what social psychology refers to as the fundamental attribution error. Forgive me for the language, I did not invent that, <laughs> but I do plan to explicate that. The fundamental attribution error, here's how it shows up in terms of blame. We make a distinction, in fact, in psychology between guilt and shame, and I want to help us with that both in terms of how we turn that towards others, in terms of blame, and how we turn that, that towards ourselves in terms of shame, starting with blame. Guilt would be me looking at you and say you did something bad, which is to say you did something that hurt me, uh, the focus being on what you did. And the, the problem with this, and this is where the fundamental attribution error comes in, is rather than attributing it to a circumstance where you did something, I attribute it to you as a stable personality, character, disposition, and I attribute it to something fundamentally flawed in you, which drops us to the second image of shame, which is, it's not that you did something bad, it's that you are something bad. And I, I purposefully selected the word something rather than someone here. Let me, let me tell you what I was thinking. There's a Jewish theologian, Martin Buber, who made a distinction between two different ways of our interacting with one another. One is what he called the I-thou relationship, where I hold you as valuable uh, in your deepest personality uh, as a soul worth, worthwhile. He contrasts that, Buber contrasted that with an I-it relationship where I really treat you as an it. I objectify you. I don't acknowledge that you have your own subjective experience. It doesn't matter. And if we go back then to this shame diagram, shame is moves me from looking at you as a thou where you did something wrong, but we can correct that. And it moves you to being an it where you're something broken something defective something bad something wrong and when i move to that move from you did to you are that's an example of making an attribution error i'm attributing what happened not to circumstance or the situation or to a behavior i'm attributing it to your very core with a behavior i can change that if it's something core to me uh, that's really not so easy to change and so therein lies the rub with a shaming attribution. Let's move next to talking about how this manifests internally for ourselves around blame, uh, around shame. Excuse me, this is really blaming ourselves, which is shame. And this is, this is the way that fundal, fundamental attribution error works in this context. And that is, if I feel guilty about something I did, something, that I, something bad that I did, I still have wiggle room to correct that. Shame doesn't stop with that guilt. In fact, guilt would be seen as valuable. How do we learn how to uh, not hurt one another's feelings, not step on one another's toes without feedback from others and to ourselves? It's essential. Shame is, uh, in this way of looking at it, is by definition toxic. And how it's toxic is that shame takes what I've done I've done something wrong or bad, let's say, to harm you. And it turns that into something fundamentally wrong or bad about me. And again, I am something bad. And so if we look again at Martin Buber, the theologian's perspective on this, I move from looking at myself as worthwhile as I am as a being. Some people put this in a spiritual context. He did as a child of God. I move from that to looking at myself as an it. I look at myself as, as something broken or wrong without any inherent worth and without any uh, inner subjectivity and honestly without any traction for making change. Now, if we move back to Everett Worthington's distinction between decisional and emotional forgiveness, begin to get the importance of this is that if I'm going to go to the deeper level, which is go to the the underlying roots of resentment to heal them, I'm going to have to stick with an I-Thou relationship to whatever wrong has been done to me and whatever wrong I've committed to someone else. And I want to preface this, and I'll actually talk about this after we do our exercise in just a few moments. I'm in no way suggesting that we give blessing to abuse Uh, And I'm in no way suggesting that we can always reconcile relationally to people that have wronged us. What I am suggesting is I want to work on a way that we can work on internal forgiveness. That's our focus today. Next week, we'll be working on relational forgiveness. Internal forgiveness in relationship to others, but working this internally. We're going to have to go deep enough, and that's going to require our getting into moving beyond where shame stops us. Shame stops us at the level of I-it. I treat you as an it or I treat myself as an it. And so to move beyond decisional forgiveness, I can treat you as an it and I'm gonna decide not to hurt you, not to retaliate. That would be decisional forgiveness, but that doesn't go far enough to spare us the after effects of of burning resentment inside. And we've gotta find some way to heal that. And the only way we can heal that is to go deeply enough and Buber would put it in the language of I-Thou. We have to move into an I-Thou relationship to whatever wrongs we have done to others and whatever wrongs have been done to us. And I'm gonna review that with us in in just a few minutes as we move into an exercise. In fact, what we'll be doing in a few moments is we'll be reviewing in a different form the exercise that dominated episode four, our, episode, our fourth episode on self-compassion featured forgiveness practice, which I referenced earlier. I want to uh, refer you back to that episode if you didn't see it, because it's an in-depth exploration of a meditation that we're going to be looking at uh, 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 from a different angle today. We're actually going to be doing journaling rather than meditating with it, and we'll be doing a more condensed version of it. If you want the Full-on version, I recommend you going to episode four. So we'll be coming to that in just a moment in our next exercise. But I want to pause for just a second and check in to see if we have any comments or questions from our audience, which I invite uh, before we dive into our first exercise. So let me check with my co-producers. We're okay? All right, good. It's all abundantly clear, isn't it? (laughs) I hope it's becoming that way. Okay, what I want to ask you to do is now to go back to the example that you wrote, hopefully down on a piece of paper in front of you, it'll be helpful again to have something that you can journal in. Uh, uh, so if it's a piece of paper or on the computer itself, um, it'll be helpful for you to be able to journal out your thoughts here. We're going to be doing in verbal fashion what we did uh, in Episode 4 in a more meditative uh, interiority. We'll be writing this out today. I think there's value in both. I think there's great value in developing a meditative space for um, interacting with others in our mind's eye in our hearts, uh, in our heart of hearts. I think there's great value to that. I also think there's tremendous value of objectively getting out on paper, concretizing our thoughts and our feelings. And that's what I'm going to ask us to do for the next several minutes. In our forgiveness practice, again, from episode one, what I've done is I've condensed the instructions down to three consecutive slides. The first slide here, forgiveness practice one, asks us to do this. I'll read it to you and then I'll flesh it out, ask you to do the exercise and do some troubleshooting around that. The exercise is this. I want you to imagine whoever it is that you have harmed, you're going to be asking them for forgiveness. And if you haven't yet identified someone, it'll make all the difference in the world. If you think about somebody big or small, make sure that it's manageable. Somebody that you've harmed uh, ideally recently so that it's fresh in your mind identify them and this is what you're going to be uh, examining as if you were expressing it to them for whatever i have done did, whatever i did to you whatever i said to you whatever i thought about you causing you harm please forgive me so think of something that you've done said thought about someone that you know has hurt their feelings has harmed them and you're asking them in your mind's eye to forgive you. And I want you to write that out right now, for your eyes only. I want you to write out what it is that you're asking for forgiveness. There's value in writing it out, to get it out, to get it down on paper. Physician, heal thyself. I'm going to do it myself. (laughs) Okay. Um, For those of you that participated in episode four, this will be uh, a review. For those of you that didn't, let me suggest one piece that I think can really help open this up in terms of getting underneath, um, getting deeper into forgiveness, is that if you can imagine what the other person felt in response to what you did or what you said or what you thought about them, uh, that can be very useful. And so it's asking for you to exercise muscles of empathy or compassion. Imagine what it felt like to them as you asked them for forgiveness. I think of this first uh, uh, component of forgiveness practice as almost tenderizing the psyche, uh, it certainly has been my experience having practiced this again and again over the years, is that it, uh, if I can start from a position of empathy, uh, when I can open myself up, I wanna say uh, to humility, to just acknowledging that I've done wrong, that I've harmed somebody and what it felt like to them, there's a way that it feels like it kind of opens up my chest cavity, opens up my heart And I'm hoping that you can find some use in that yourself. I want to encourage you right now, too, is if you have any thoughts or questions that arise as you're doing this exercise. This is the first of three parts that we're going to explore. I want you to be sure to write those uh, questions to me if you feel comfortable. And I won't name anybody that writes in out of respect to, I think, the privacy, particularly of this exercise. And so if you have a question, if you've gotten uh, stalled somewhere in the process, I want you to feel free to reach out to me and I'll respond right now. I'll ask uh, Austin and Franz to let me know if any of you write in. Okay. So for the first piece, we're asking for forgiveness, and we're asking that with a contrite heart, that is a humble, open heart, is really uh, uh, providing compassion. For some of us, this may be easier than for others. Uh, I think there's great use in practicing this kind of humility on a regular basis. Especially if what we want is connection, especially if what we're leading towards is a healing of resentments, is to start by opening ourselves, or opening our hearts. Now the next slide, uh, Forgiveness Practice Two, turns this practice around, and for this one I want you to take a situation, it may be the same person, Uh, it's ideal sometimes, I, I know in my own practice, I'll pick a certain individual, and there will be both directions where I'm asking for forgiveness as well as offering forgiveness. In this case, the second slide, these are the instructions. For whatever you did to me or said to me or thought about me, causing me harm, I forgive you. And so I want you to write this down, and then I'm going to unpack it in just a moment too. Again, for, for any of you that participated in episode four, you'll, you'll uh, be familiar with this, but I want to underscore a couple of observations here that may be useful to you. I hope so. One is um, I think it's really important that we own the hurt. And what I mean by that is it won't do for me to move too quickly into any form or fashion of forgiveness by bypassing my own, uh, my own injury. And so we start by being compassionate towards ourselves, and that is that we own the feelings that were stirred up. And so I hope that you can do that now. As you review what, what harm came your way, that you can review how that felt without judgment. And once having done that, the next part is challenging and, and uh, you'll see why I asked you to pick something that feels workable, <laughs> to begin with at least, is that I want to ask you to imagine why this person might have said something or done something or even thought something about you that harmed you, why they could have done that. And what we're doing right now, you all, is we're asking for ourselves to move away from the impulse to turn this person into an it. And hold them as a thou, which is to say, they had their subjectivity, they had their own reasons, doesn't give blessing to what they did to harm us, but that in this circumstance, under this under this uh, situation, this is what they did to us. It's to, I, think of, I think of this as, as empathy or compassion. And I'm not talking about going easy on the offense. I'm talking about more of an understanding of how they could have gotten to a place where they harmed us. What was that about for them? The trickiest part of this is to hold both of these close to one another. That is to say, I was harmed by this person, the one that I'm journaling about right now, and that you're doing that. I was harmed by them on the one hand. And on the other hand, I can understand, I don't have to agree with, but I can understand possibly why they might have done that. What it's doing, it's, it's allowing for their subjectivity as misguided as it was. What we're trying to do is reclaim this person as a human being. Rather than holding them at arm's length and only resenting them, we're actually trying to introduce compassion into a situation where resentment wants to take hold. And it will if we don't combat it with, I think, deep effort at empathizing or offering compassion. Now the third slide, the third exercise, is especially in talking about shame and self-compassion is the, is the critical one. And here are the instructions for this one. For whatever I did to this person, for whatever I said to them, for whatever I thought about them causing them harm, I forgive myself. So I want you to go back into the first situation that you wrote about on slide number one, where you're asking them for forgiveness. I want you to go right back into that situation. And this time I want you to see if you can find forgiveness for yourself and then write down a sentence expressing that. I find a couple things helpful here, and this third one, as I said, focuses uh, It's like radical surgery in terms of self-compassion. In this one, I'm being asked to acknowledge the harm I did to somebody, how it might have felt to them, and that I was the one that did that, and not turn myself into an it, into somebody defective. But that given this circumstance, owing to my own limitations, this is what I did. What were those limitations? And can I acknowledge and own those limitations and still be loving and kind and gentle with myself? Which is not the same as excusing it, not the same as slipping away from responsibility. In fact, ironically, the only way I can be responsible to change my life is to be able to offer grace to myself for my imperfections that I might work on them. If I judge myself, if I turn myself into an it it shuts down the whole process. Shame paralyzes me, we want to be free of shame. We're wanting to free ourselves of shame and resentment, and we're working at a way of doing that via compassion and empathy. In this case, we're talking about being empathic towards myself. So to imagine what I did to this person, what I said to them, and what that felt like to them on the one hand, and on the other, to understand how that could have happened for me, not to excuse it, but to understand that. Inherent in that understanding is an openness to learning from this experience and not repeating it. So these are the three elements of the forgiveness practice that we visited in episode four. I direct you back to that for more uh, specific instructions of how you might do a meditation into this. And I recommend doing that regularly. (laughs) In fact, while I'm thinking of it, there's a there's a new uh, track of that meditation coming out in December. I'll be announcing it here. It'll be it'll be available online and it's a track that's specifically um, about a forgiveness meditation that you can practice on your own. But before we wind up today, I just want to make a few uh, final points to help inform what we've talked about, and this is in the spirit of deepening our conversation about forgiveness, one I've already implied. I mentioned Everett Worthington earlier, uh, one of the world experts in the psychology of forgiveness, and uh, Worthington makes a very clear distinction, and I told you about his own personal story earlier. He made this distinction to the audience in which I sat and first encountered him. He made this distinction in reference to his own personal life, including the loss of his mother is that forgiveness is an interior practice where I can forgive somebody as an interior letting go of resentment. And that in no way presupposes that I will continue to be in relationship to them. When he went to visit this inmate, the one who had killed his mother, this is not the beginning of a friendship. It was a way for Everett Worthington to concretize, to outwardly enact what he needed to do to close the loop of forgiveness. For this horrible loss this horrible tragedy and so uh, worthington makes this distinction it's a critical distinction that my forgiving somebody uh, does is not tantamount to reconciling with them and you can think of any examples in your life where where to reconcile with somebody would be to open yourself back up to abuse let's say open yourself back up to hurt and that would be uh, that would not be what we're talking about with forgiveness Forgiveness is an inner work that I can do. And we've talked about ways of beginning to open up so that we can let go of our resentments uh, and we can make a decision whether we want to reconcile behaviorally with somebody or not. I mentioned it earlier and I'll mention it at the very end today, but next week's segment, next week's presentation will be on when we can reconcile, what are the steps or stages that go into effectively reconciling in relationships. But what we're suggesting here today right now is that Not everyone we forgive uh, can we reconcile with, and I really want to establish that very clearly. A second point is in reference to something that I learned from the Jungian analyst, James Hillman. Hillman made a distinction between forgiveness uh, 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 where we forget and forgiveness where we remember. And in fact, he argued strongly in favor of the latter, that, that forgive and forget doesn't make any sense. Forgiveness does not equal forgetting. In fact, forgiveness, think about what we just did in the exercise. We're actually working hard at remembering what we did, what that felt like to the other, remembering what they did, what that felt like to us, and finding a a different way, a deeper way of managing what it is that we remember. There's nothing implied in here about erasing, bypassing, or forgetting the harm done. It's actually about remembering it. I'm going to reference Sigmund Freud, the founder of modern psychoanalysis and such a cardinal figure in Western thought, who made this observation. He says that repression is non-selective. And this is a key point, is that if I choose to forget wrongs that are done to me, that is to repress them, one of the problems that arises from that is that because I've repressed something doesn't mean that my body forgets that. Or that my unconscious forgets it. I've just basically stuffed it away in the back, uh, the back lot someplace, and it will come back. It will come back in various forms. It can come back in a physical form in terms of a medical symptom. It can come back in terms of what Freud called displacement, where I've been hurt by somebody. I stuffed that away. I forgave and I forgot, and then I find myself lashing out at somebody completely innocent and not at all related to the initial offense. And so when he says repression is non-selective, if I choose to repress feelings uh, uh, of of wrongs done to others or wrongs done to me, the problem is is that I end up repressing other aspects of my life as well. So for example, I end up repressing love and compassion, end up repressing creativity and vitality. Our lives become smaller and smaller bandwidths owing to the fact that we're keeping so much at bay. It takes tremendous psychic energy to keep this stuff stuffed away in the basement. I wanna finish today by offering you a definition of genuine forgiveness, and it's in two parts. Genuine forgiveness, that is the forgiveness that is a cure for resentment, and we've already established that resentment is one of the enemies of sustained and successful recovery from addiction, that genuine forgiveness is this. It's where I can remember the wrong done, the wrong done to me, the wrong done to somebody else by me i can res- i can remember the wrong done to me without resentment so we don't forget it we remember it we're able to remember it without resentment and the next the next part of that definition is with the capacity to extend compassion to the wrongdoer whether that wrongdoer is myself or someone else and whether i do that ex- that that compassionate empathy, that work of empathy, whether I do that in an inner way, like what we just did in our journaling, or in episode four in the meditation, or in the outer world, in terms of actually bringing this to somebody else, um, uh, as Everett Worthington did to the assailant of his mother, he brought this for his own healing sake, and as we'll talk about more next week, in cases where we need to reconcile and want to reconcile, and believe that it's possible to reconcile relationships. It's, it's to be able to add compassion to the mix. So if you can think about it, it's remembering without resentment and adding the crucial ingredient of compassion toward the others or compassion towards ourselves. And any forgiveness that deletes memory, any, any, uh, com, uh, any forgiveness that uh, bypasses resentment, that would be decisional forgiveness, leaves us... Uh, with half of forgiveness. And any forgiveness that does not include compassion, both towards ourselves and towards others, is short-sighted and won't won't serve us in the long term either. Well, I've been pointing towards it throughout this presentation, and that is next week we'll be looking at uh, another view towards the advanced psychology of forgiveness. Specifically, we'll be looking at reconciliation in relationships where there's been wrongs done and we feel like that the healing can happen in the relationship. For example, in the program, the the 12-step program, making amends um, oftentimes involves reconciliation, bringing the wrongs that we've done to others and asking for forgiveness. And we'll be talking about how psychology informs that process. Uh, And also, I've always felt this in the 12-step program, my own work in it, is that making amends Uh, in the case of somebody who would only serve to further abuse or harm us, would be violating the very intent behind making amends. And so it means that it's an interior process, much like what we've done today. I I don't negate making amends. Sometimes I can't do that in the outer because it would be further abuse to me. So I have to find an inner way of working with it, just like what we did today. And so next week's topics will include attachment theory from psychology, as that applies to addiction and recovery, and how attachment theory informs forgiveness, specifically reconciliation in our current relationships right now. So I hope that you'll come back for that uh, session next week. I look forward to your comments, uh, questions uh, that you can send to me through this website. Uh, 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 You you can also uh, send comments or questions to me to my own website uh, at uh, drbobweathers.com. You're welcome to write me there. I store uh, the, our videos on my website. I know that you'll find access to archived uh, videos here at Ask an Addiction Specialist, at Beginnings Treatment Center, at their archive. There are multiple ways of accessing our archived materials, and I invite you responding. You'll see it uh, when you uh, in, in the boxes below. Uh, our presentation today, where you can write to me. And I know that Austin and Franz will forward your responses to me. You can also write to me directly through the website. It doesn't matter. It's all freely given. It's really meant as a service to you all. So thank you for today, for the inner part of what we'll be looking at next week in terms of the outer part of forgiveness. And uh, the the one goal here is to reduce our vulnerability to relapse by addressing this uh, cancerous form of, of resentment. And I'm hoping what we can talk about is a way that we can do this, it actually is beyond just making a mental decision. Or back to C.S. Lewis's comment earlier, it's not just a good idea. It's actually a practice that we can develop that we can begin to see the fruit of it in our own lives. So I invite you back to part two of this, this series next week. Thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure sharing all of this with you. Look forward to seeing you next week. Take care for now.